Hello, and good afternoon, or good morning, or good evening, depending on your time zone. And welcome to the LSE. My name is Justin Parkhurst. I am currently the chair of the LSE Global Health Initiative, and it is really my pleasure, my honor, to be chairing this event, uh, introducing Claire Wenham's new book on feminist global health security. Today, we've got a great panel, um, which we'll be hearing from, and I believe Claire also may have a discount code for her book, which she'll try and post in the chat uh, if possible as well, for those of you who are interested in ordering it. Uh, so as I said, my name is Justin Parkhurst, and I'm currently the chair of the LSE Global Health Initiative. But this event is being co-hosted by the Global Health Initiative, the Department of Health Policy, and, and the LSE Latin American Caribbean Center. Uh, today, we'll have Dr. Claire Wenham introducing and discussing her book. Claire is an associate professor of global health policy here at the LSE. She specializes in global health security, the politics and policy of pandemic preparedness and outbreak response. And she's researched this for over a decade through influenza, Ebola, and Zika. Her research poses questions of global governance, the role of the World Health Organization and World Bank, uh, national priorities, financing for pandemic control, and so on. More recently, she's been examining the role of women in epidemics and associated policy. For COVID-19, Claire is co-principal investigator on a grant from CIHR and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, analyzing the gender dimensions of the outbreak. And I'd just also like to say, Claire is a fantastic colleague that I've been working with for several years, and it really is an honor to be uh, chairing this event for her new book, which is fantastic. And I really encourage you all to have a look at it. And then we have our panel. Uh, first up, we'll have uh, speaking after Claire, Professor Nyla Kabir, who's Professor of Gender and Development here at the LSE in the Department of Gender Studies and the Department of International Development. Her research interests include gender, poverty, social exclusion, labor markets and livelihoods, social protection and citizenship, and much of her research is focused on South and Southeast Asia. Nyla is currently involved in an ESRC DFID funded research project uh, related to gender and labor market dynamics in Bangladesh and India. Um, we also have, and actually I believe I got the order wrong already. I think speaking before Nyla will be Professor Sophie Harmon. Uh, apologies, Sophie. Sophie is Professor of International Politics at Queen Mary University of London with a specific interest in global health, African agency, film and visual methods, and gender politics. She was awarded the Joni Lovodusky Prize for Outstanding Professional Achievement by a Mid-Career Scholar by the Political Science Association uh, in 2018, the Philip Lieberhume Prize in 2018, and was nominated for a BAFTA for Outstanding Debut by a British Writer, Director, or Producer in 2019 for her fantastic feature film, Pili, um, about HIV in Africa. Uh, we were very honored to have a screening of that here at the LSE as well. And again, highly encourage you for those interested in that subject area to have a look for that film. And then our last discussant will be Gustavo Mata, who is a public health researcher at the Sergio Aruca National School of Public Health at Oswaldo Cruz Foundation, or Fio Cruz, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. He is also the coordinator of the Zika Social Sciences Network. So I hope you agree. We've really got a fantastic panel to discuss uh, this book today and really hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, if you have questions to ask, um, the chat feature is not available for, for uh, viewers. Instead, there's the Q&A feature. So please post your questions in the Q&A. And after our speaker and our discussants, uh, we'll take a sample of questions as best we can in the time that follows. So thank you again for joining us. And it's my pleasure to hand over to Claire, please. Thank you, Justin. And thank you, everybody, for being here. I mean, mainly it feels really self-indulgent to have an event like this and kind of have such an esteemed panel to be part of. And so thank you to Sophie, Nyla and Gustavo for taking the time to read the book and can give some reflections on it today. And thank you also to everybody who's joining and listening to this. And, uh, you know, I hope that there is something interesting. It seems strange when I first um, 
press send to submit this book. It was December 2019. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, it's going to be novel and it's going to be exciting. And I feel a little bit like this book's a bit out of date already, which tells you a lot about how much things have moved on in the last 18 months or so. But I hope that you will still find something interesting in this book. And I you know, hope you will all read it and engage with it. And I'd love to hear all of your comments in due course. I wanted to start with why I wrote this book, because I don't think it was necessarily about me being an avid feminist and saying I want to critique global health security. This book started out about being a book about Zika. I was fed up with looking at the way Zika was being portrayed in global health security. I was fed up with a complete disconnect I was seeing reading uh, what was happening on the ground in Brazil and in other parts of Latin America and how it was being portrayed at the global level. And I became frustrated with this kind of disconnect that we were seeing between sort of Geneva and Washington and the everyday level. And so I started out trying to kind of plug this a bit further and trying to really kind of understand why we're seeing this disconnect and how were policy decisions that were happening at the global level and indeed at the national level impacting or not impacting both the trajectory of the, of the epidemic, but also how people's lives are being affected by the decisions that were happening. And I guess what happened in the course of the four years it's taken me to get to this stage of publication is kind of the, the result of deductive research, right? I didn't go in with a theory or with an idea about what this book was going to be about, but I let the data lead me. And what I saw, and I remember this having this very vivid moment in 2018 of just being like, this is what it is. Everything, all the data is showing me are all these things that we know of in feminist IR, right? It's all the same story again and again and again. And so that's how I got, I got to here, right? And I also want to say that, you know, I wasn't the first person to talk about, you know, the, the lack of feminist engagement in global health security. Sophie's written about it during Ebola. Sarah Davis has written about it during Ebola and Zika. And Julia Smith, uh, you know, a fantastic colleague now in the COVID project we're working on, has talked about it in Ebola as well. Obviously, this builds off a, a broader history of looking at feminist critique of HIV AIDS, for example, as the big one we often talk about in global health and feminist theories. Now, I also think that I wanted to uh, give you a kind of rough overview today about what the book was about. I once went to a book launch and someone just read the first chapter of their book and it was, you know, it sent everybody to sleep. So I don't want to do that. What I'm going to do is give you the kind of main argument I make in this book and then a few bits of flavours of kind of how I explore this. The main issue I had and almost the starting point then for when I retraced through all the data I'd accumulated from researching the policies and, and kind of on the ground research of uh, those affected by the Zika outbreak was this disconnect between how we had seen gender being portrayed in global health and I'm hoping Sophie can talk about this uh, as she goes on but it kind of had this wake-up moment and I'm sort of spurred by Me Too and broader issues that were going on globally around gender Global health seemed to kind of suddenly get gender in 2018, 2019, and it'd been something which hadn't really been talked about, or at least not talked about in the mainstream. Obviously, there's a, hist a strong history of people researching gender in health, but it hadn't really got to this heightened sense of policymaking. And then suddenly we started to see things change. We started to see the Women in Global Health movement, for example, which has become a pivotal force for change in global health. We saw initiatives like Global Health 5050, 
which was trying to push organizations to become more gender aware and making sure they were mainstreaming policies. We saw, you know, firm commitments from things like the Lancet to you know, not having any manuals and making sure there was representation in authorship. So we were seeing this change. But again, this change was happening at the global level. And I didn't see, and the big kind of point for me was I didn't see how this global discussion around gender at the global level in global health was trickling down to have any effects on the everyday women who, was, who were living the experiences of global health policy and global health security policy. And so I really wanted to ask, why have we got this absence, right? Why is it that we might be able to start making changes to understanding gender in health policy, but that this wasn't having effect on the everyday woman? And there seemed to be a disconnect there between kind of high level and low level politics. And so I think Zika also provides a really interesting case study for thinking about gender and global health security, because let's face it, this, this epidemic was all about women. It was all about women who were pregnant, not getting exposed to mosquitoes, because we knew the main outcome and the main way we were seeing this uh, epidemic was through babies being born with congenital Zika syndrome. And so actually for an epidemic, which is all about changing women's behaviors and protecting women, we didn't see gender mainstream policy. And so this, to me, seemed a big gap as well. So we knew that the issue was about women getting pregnant and, and trying to protect them during their pregnancy. But the policy we were seeing, where it did engage with gender, it reproduced paternalistic understandings around controlling women's reproductive functions. And it didn't see this broader issue about actually how women interact in everyday life and how policy affects them. And so the main argument, I guess, in this book is that global health security has become a very dominant narrative and a dominant policy uh, program in global health. You know, in many ways, those two things become almost synonymous. But actually, kind of global health security prioritizes, you know, jumping in, preventing, detecting and responding to the pandemic, not thinking about these broader issues of how policy impacts different people. But global health security is very state centric. And this is obviously a result of how policy is made and how, you know, dominant state policies affect health and health affect everyday people living in every country around the world. But actually, the state structure still dominates even at the global level. And we have this very state centric approach to how we think about security, even though even when we think about global health security, who's being protected from being secure is the state. It's about protecting state economies. It's about protecting state structures. It's about protecting health systems or whatever it might be. And it's not about protecting the individuals. And importantly, what I try and argue in this book is it doesn't consider women. And actually this whole model of health security fails um, to neglect women's uh, reality. And not only does it neglect women's reality, but the policy pathways expect women to absorb all the additional costs associated with implementing these policies. And so we can see this very clearly in COVID, you know, I'm, I'm preaching to the converted, I'm sure, with people, mainly women, taking on the added burden of, of homeschooling and having to uh, do all the additional domestic labor and having to take people to, you know, vaccine appointments now, whatever it might be. We see women absorbing this labor, but governments and policymakers not recognizing actually the realities on the ground of everyday 
life for most places. And so I try and argue then that we need to reconceptualize the way we think about health security and bring a sort of feminist approach to doing that. And I argue that in three main ways. So the kind of three key points I make is, first of all, we need to recognize who is being recognized, who are the women in health security and who is being recognized by policymakers. So importantly, what we saw in the Zika outbreak was it wasn't women who were recognized, it was mothers. And there's a distinction here between kind of, actually we're trying to protect mothers rather than women at large. And this has a big, a big um, impact on the policy pathways we saw. Now this ties into other literature in this space, uh, in international relations, for example, where lots of policies kind of consider um, women to be either mothers, monsters, or whores that we see kind of a continual language around. Um, and you know, in Latin America, we have this kind of rich history of, of machismo and marianismo, where women are seen to be the kind of you know motherly figure that it, this all this all ties into. And indeed, the mothers of babies born with congenital Zika syndrome themselves identified as mothers rather than women. And they saw themselves, and I argue uh, that they continue to see themselves in this role as mother. But the impact of this is that policies were produced to protect mothers rather than trying to protect women from becoming mothers in the first place. So we didn't actually see meaningful policy to prevent infection in the first place. We were looking at how do we stop uh, how do we you know, support those women who are indeed uh, already living with congenital seeker syndrome? We also then can take this one step further and unpack actually which women we did see in the policy space. And again, it was mothers, you know, Brazilian mothers predominantly. But also we saw this narrative around um, kind of, well, sort of intersectional issues around which mothers were recognized and not recognized. Certainly in, in Europe, in the US, there was a big thing around, you know, women of childbearing age shouldn't go on holiday and you shouldn't have your baby moon in the Caribbean. And this became a very different disjuncture between kind of rich white women being deprived of holidays compared with those who were most affected in Brazil, who were the poor, uh, black, most rural women living, you know, far away from where policymaking is happening. And I think you can also then tie this into what we saw during the rubella, the rubella outbreaks that we saw in the uh, 50s in America, for example. Now, for those of you who are unaware, in the 50s, there were uh, rubella was causing congenital uh, malformations during development of, of newborn or development of babies in womb. And it was one of the key moments was actually seeing women and with their partners. And it was mainly middle class white women from stable homes going to court in America asking for abortions and it was framed as the responsible thing to do. Now this was very different to how a similar disease is having an effect on women in Brazil where you know abortion wasn't an option and it wasn't even considered to be the responsible thing to do. And so we see this this important role of which type of women are affected and in what ways and how does that impact on the trajectories that are available to them? The second argument I make is that as a consequence of how women were perceived, as a consequence of this securitized narrative, the main policy we see coming from government was to clean your house and not get pregnant. So it was about trying to limit the, the impact of the mosquito by reducing uh, vector you know, proliferation by making sure that your water butts are upturned, by making sure your civic spaces are upturned. 
And actually, and, and at the same time, we saw this messaging coming from many governments in Latin America to delay getting pregnant, to, to just avoid getting pregnant altogether until this cycle had passed. Now, if we break this down into feminist concepts of social reproduction and stratified reproduction, we can unpack this a bit further. So in terms of social reproduction, we know that it's women who absorb most of the labor in the households. So if you say to someone, clean your house, make sure there are no mosquitoes in it, that burden is going to fall onto women to do. And actually, there's a strong literature now appearing around the intersection between vector control and women's uh, informal labor in the households. And again, if you then look at stratified reproduction, we know that certain women and, you know, the richer women in more urban areas are more likely to be able to avoid pregnancy than other women in Latin American society. Now, this isn't just around access, but it's also around legality. So we know across Latin America that up to 69% of pregnancies are unintended. And so therefore, the question is, well, you can't tell women to not get pregnant if you're at the same time not providing with, with the mechanisms to avoid pregnancy. We see high rates of inability to access contraception, for example. We know that, and this has changed uh, since, uh, since Zika with changes in, in Argentina, but actually 90% of women in Latin America live in a location where abortion is, is illegal or prohibited. And so what you then see further than this is women who may not want to get pregnant. And actually, uh, another research project I have done with colleagues at LSE has shown actually women were trying to avoid pregnancy during Zika. But they weren't able to, and or rather, not everyone was able to in the same way. And what we see is a different dynamic amongst richer women who are able effectively to access contraception or available uh, or who can afford to fly internationally to seek an abortion or pay for a private clinic. And the poorest, most deprived women who are not only the most likely to be infected with Zika because of the, their poor living conditions, meaning they're more engaged with mosquitoes, but they're the least likely to be able to um, access abortion or contraception should they need. Now, with this rhetoric, though, and with this policy rhetoric, the Brazilian government in particular, I would argue, made a very pertinent stand to responsibilize women. We have told you you need to clean your house. We've told you you need to not get pregnant. If you then have a baby born with congenital Zika syndrome, well, that's on you because we gave you all the advice and we told you what you needed to do. And so actually, it was quite a canny way that governments have then been able to absolve themselves from the blame of this epidemic. And this then leads on to the kind of final point I make in this book, which is around the structural violence within societies, which disproportionately affects women during epidemic crises. So, for example, we know that in um, Latin America, particularly in Brazil and in Colombia, it's the, you know, the poorest, the blackest women in the most rural regions who are the ones who are most affected by uh, Zika. And we know that there were, you know, there was this, tension between those who are most at risk of getting bitten by a mosquito, getting infected with Zika, and the ones who are most unable to do anything about it. And there's this tension because of their kind of everyday lives, of everything else they're living with, right? They have to make sure they've got food to feed their other children. They're trying to go to work. They're living in a, a place of extreme poverty. There's, you know, rife violence in, in, in their households with domestic violence, in their communities with gang-related violence. 
And actually, some of the women's groups we, I spoke to were saying, you know, this little mosquito is nothing. Like, I can, I'll, I'll take my chances with that over everything else I have to do on my daily life. And we see this then, this kind of structural violence then kind of not only in women's realities of how they're living alongside Zika, but actually in the way that governments have failed to do anything about it, right? And I think one of the big ways we see this, and it's not something that we often hear about in global health security, is this lack of access to water, sanitation, and hygiene, right? Routine issues that we know are going to affect your likelihood of becoming infected with a mosquito-borne disease. The fact that governments aren't providing that and the fact that the response by governments to respond to Zika has been about, let's go in and just kill all the vectors rather than thinking, well, they're just going to come back next year, right? And I'm sure Gustavo can tell us that this is just a cyclical event, right? It's just until you tackle these root causes of structural violence within public health systems, you're going to have continued epidemics of things like Zika, dengue, chikungunya, these vector-borne diseases. Justin, I know I'm out of time, but I'm just going to conclude with, so what I try and argue in this book is what can feminist knowledge bring to this? And I think the key thing that it can do is it can ask the question of who's being recognised in these policies and who is not being recognised and why does that matter? And I argue that we should reposition women to be at the centre of the way we think about health security. So rather than having it as a state-centric concept where we try and protect states and state economies from the risks posed by pathogens, we should be protecting women from the risks posed by policies introduced to mitigate against these pathogens. And so it's a kind of broader critique around global health security, but showing how actually feminist critique can expose a lot of the issues that are happening in health, society, in health systems. And actually by exposing them and by trying to reposition what's important, you're going to see different policy, policy pathways. If you had taken a feminist approach to dealing with Zika, for example, you, the policies wouldn't have been around clean your house and don't get pregnant. It would have been around, do we have access to contraception? Do we have access to uh, abortion? Do we have strong um, you know, mosquito control? Can we take, tackle these broader structural challenges? And so actually reframing what's important is going to lead to very different policy pathways. I'm gonna leave it there. Uh, and please all do, here's, it's out, it's real. And I'll put a uh, link in the chat with the code for a discount for those of you who wish to order it. Great, well, thank you so much, Claire, for that. Um, Really interesting. And I'm sure our panelists have loads to say as well. And I believe first up in the running order is uh, Sophie Harmon from Queen Mary. Thanks, Justin. And thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of this discussion. And really huge congratulations, Claire, on the publication of the book. I mean, we've talked about it for years, so it's finally great to see it. I mean, see it on your bookshelf. I still haven't got my copy, but I've, re I've read it, so it's, it's fine. Don't worry, I've not just made this all up. Um, so no, it's fantastic. And I think as much as you put these books in the world and then you think they're out of date by the time they're published, actually, given everything that's happened in the last 18 months, it is highly relevant still. And these are issues I think we need to keep saying, say it and say it again, um, to quote my old PhD supervisor. Anyway, so one of the main aims of the book is to showcase the absurdity and painful reality of the consequences of global health security when it fails to take the needs of women and their health seriously. 
And this is definitely an acute issue, as Claire highlighted, that many of us have experienced this past year and will resonate with women around the world. I don't think you need to be a woman living in extreme poverty in the northeast of Brazil to realise the gendered impact of health emergencies and outbreaks. And I just want to take this opportunity to really note the impressive work of Claire in the last 18 months of mobilising her research around Zika to get the world to, to pay attention to some of these issues around gender and COVID-19. I've been really fortunate to work with Claire on these issues, but it's been really dizzying and impressive to watch. I mean, I don't know when you sleep, Claire. I'm quite worried about your general well-being as a consequence, but you always seem very happy about this. Um, so really, you know, I know what is upsetting is while you have been dizzying and impressive, the response to gender in COVID-19 has been flat and very much less than impressive. You know, what has changed has been a lot of rhetoric, a lot of visibility, but we're not really seeing much movement, which perhaps we can reflect on in the Q&A at the end. Um, so we've seen that even from a major pandemic with an abundance of research and evidence, high profile advocacy around these issues, they still fall by the wayside, okay? Quite simply, global health still doesn't get gender and continues to fail women. As Claire said, you know, we saw this kind of resurgence of attention to gender in 2018 and 19 that's amplified around the current pandemic. But there's this sort of there's still kind of some questions there. I've personally argued that actually it's not around visibility of women. Women are highly visible and global health knows this. They just see women as the solution, as Claire also uh, highlights in this great book. So what does Claire's book, how does Claire's book help us? How is it going to move forward these discussions? And I think what's really vital about Claire's uh, book is, you know, the way in which she details what happens with Zika in such rich detail, but then kind of gives us a framework on how we can think this through and take it forward with the framework around feminist global health security. And as Claire suggests, there's kind of, I think there's actually four frameworks. She says three, it's her book. You can say that. And in academia, we always have three, but I think there's four. The first is obviously that we reorient global health security to centre women, not states, as the referent object. We second make women visible in a meaningful way, which I think is really key. We ground global health security in the everyday realities of women. So we don't have these kind of, you know, I think anyone who works in global health who's ever been to Geneva or observed what happens in Geneva, there is this one like, you have absolutely no connection to what's happening on the ground in the countries you affect. How do we make this connection, I think, is really important. And fundamentally, don't make, more, so don't make women more busy and don't just assume they're going to absorb the cost of these outbreaks. And given this event is being run um, by LSE, I really just want to acknowledge the huge debt feminists working in global health have to the late Professor Sylvia Chant and her work on the feminization of poverty alleviation, which has really shaped some of my thinking around this, these issues and I think are really echoes throughout Claire's book. Um, so yes, so Sylvia, while she's gone, her work very much still resonates. So I've been really fortunate because I've got to have coffees and beers and all sorts with Claire over the years and discuss some of these issues. And I, I think over the last year, there's sort of things that I agree with Claire and I've developed a lot of these ideas in my own work. But I kind of would welcome your reflections on these, Claire. Now we're like 18 months after the pandemic or 18 months after you submitted the book, really. And the first is about this centering women as a referent object in global health security uh, instead of states. 
And I made a similar argument um, with Sarah Davies in a piece that we published at the start of 2020. And the idea is that you reclaim the origins of global health security. It was never meant to be about protecting states. It was meant to be about protecting individuals and kind of lifting uh, the profile of health. But has the horse bolted? I kind of wax and wane. Can we do this in a way that we can reclaim it? It seems now that global health security has taken on such different levels from, you know, your everyday person on the street being able to say, you know, we're, you know no one's safe until everyone's safe and all that kind of, those sort of idioms. But there are really serious concerns of consequences for women if we do center them as the referent objects. So if we look at what's happening around COVID-19, around border controls, undermining civil liberties, authoritarian issues that, Claire, I know you've been hugely vocal about and concerned about in um, other aspects of your COVID-19 research. If we combine this with the growth of anti-gender, anti-feminist movements around the world, if we position women and their issues and concerns as central, they also then become the origin of the threat. And if you're seen as the threat, then that then comes with this whole wealth of kind of expertise and institutions of global health that these women might not want in their lives. So thinking about the women you talk about, you know, they're like, this mosquito is nothing. I mean, do they want to have the full force of the WHO and the World Bank on their doorstep? I don't know. I don't know these women. But having spoken to similar women in the HIV and AIDS response, there is a sort of tension there. So I was just sort of thinking, do you still stand by this argument? Obviously, you have to say yes, because the book's out now. But just reflecting on it with everything that you've seen that's been going on. Um, yeah. Second, I'm really interested in how we centre our own feminist praxis in global health security. So the book very much constructs global health security as something kind of out there that's done by these institutions and actors. But also this is something that as scholars, as you become more vocal about these issues, become deeply embedded within. So, you know, Claire, like I say, your advocacy and commitment has been fantastic. But how do you balance that issue of becoming, you know, you are now part of global health security. You're shaping global health security. This book will. And so how do you kind of maintain independence from that sort of insider, outside attention and working with some of those actors that actually reproduce these inequalities, um, particularly this kind of instrumentalization? So I know lots of your partners are quite keen as women being solutions to these issues in economic empowerment. So it's always a difficult line to tread, but that would be interesting in how we as scholars navigate this and how we are not used to legitimize say, states saying they're doing something on gender when we know fundamentally they are not. And then third, I want to kind of push on um, this question of visibility. So thanks so much for drawing on my conception of conspicuous invisibility, Claire. It's always lovely to get some citations up <laughs> in the rankings. Um, and part of this concept is actually women have always been highly visible in global health, highly visible. They're just invisible from the spaces in which it matters. And to what end do we make women visible in global health security? Like, what, what, to what, what's the point? What, who does it benefit? At the moment, it seems to really just serve global policymakers. You know, they're sort of like, oh look, we're not on a manual. Here are some women. You know, women flanking Tedros, Director General of WHO. That's the classic example. And it seems to kind of help elite women, never really the women that are in the book. So how how do we square that tension as well? So it doesn't really seem to me the visibility is serving the needs of these women. It just seems to be serving the needs of other institutions. And it's just another example that women never matter for their own sake. 
they matter for economic empowerment, they matter for pandemic response, and they matter for the visibility of others, but never their own health and needs. And then finally, I kind of want to end with my own kind of provocation, which is by no means original and pretty obvious when you think about it. But what would it take to listen to women and ask them what they want and deliver it in global health? As Claire rightly points out in her book, there's this paternalist presumption that people working in global health know what women want. But I'm really unsure when anyone actually asks women because we have the same repetitions of actually when you talk to women, such as the women in Claire's book, it's like, I want to be able to feed my kids. I want some water and sanitation. I want a decent job. And I just don't want to be subject to violence. I just want to live a quiet life. Who doesn't want a quiet life? Actually, I kind of want some excitement back in my life at the moment. But do you know what I mean? Like, it's who actually talks to these women and asks them what they want. Because what struck me when reading Claire's book is really how little distance we've come since Nancy Shepard Hughes's seminal death without weeping, similarly set in Brazil. What's changed? Is this, what's changed is you've just got all these actors and institutions and people saying that they're centering gender, saying that they're working on women, and these huge amounts of funds going towards these very specific diseases and issues, whether it's HIV, Zika, COVID-19. But still, clearly from Claire's, you know, Claire's book, really, really, serving the needs of women that doesn't come in what women want their health care and so i think until we start asking and more importantly listening to women in death without weeping and in feminist global health security and focus on women's issues and interests rather than just adding women into kind of panels we're just going to get nowhere on gender equality in global health including in global health security so i see justin's face so that's my uh, cue to shut up and again congratulate claire and I really look forward to our discussions in how we take some of these ideas forward. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sophie. Uh, yeah, so I'll just pop myself up towards the end of time. That's kind of the most polite way I can do it, although I don't know how polite that is. Um, Clara, there were some questions in there for you, but I think our plan is to go through each of the discussions and then we'll have the open Q&A and you could probably respond to some of those as well as our audience, if that's all right. So I think uh, next up we have Professor Nala Kabir from the LSC. Okay. <clears throat> well, I'm very pleased to be invited to this launch of Claire's excellent book. Uh, obviously, I read it for this occasion, but I'm going to have to read it again because there's a hell of a lot in it and I wasn't able to absorb it because this is not really my field. However, what is my field and what I really kind of valued about it is that it is a very interesting like a textbook example of how you do a feminist feminist discourse analysis of a policy and then follow it through to the ground and ask yourself, where is the mismatch? You know, where is the gap between what is going Now, she takes what I understand now is the dominant policy paradigm in health, which is global health security, um, and finds it severely wanting, but particularly for people on the ground. And she backs up her claim with this uh, detailed case study of Brazil. Global health security, as far as I understand, was adopted by the WTO around 2005. And it is one that seems to have displaced the idea of health as a human right or health as a development issue with health as a security issue. And health security is posed by diseases that we don't know about, we're not familiar with, uh, diseases that seem to have a impact on uh, trade and travel disproportionate to the burden that they represent in terms of mortality and mobility, and, the, and as a result, diseases that disrupt the economy and can bring about 
instability, conflict, and so on. So you link it with the idea of, uh, of security. It's a security risk. And of course, at the time of global travel, at a time of weaponization of pathogens and all of that, you can also see the link with a security agenda. But this, is, of course, is a considerable distance from the idea of human security, which Claire cites from uh, the 1994 Human Development Report, where for most people, and this goes to something that both of you have said, the feeling of insecurity arises more from worries about daily life than about the dread of cataclysmic world events. Anything that threatens the health of an individual is a health security, is a health risk. Illness, having to pay huge amounts of money, becoming impoverished. So what we have now is a WHO linking health and security in a very, very different way. And taking it from what Claire refers to as the realm of low politics to the realm of high politics. And in that process, I suppose, joining the big boys at the table. You know, the biggest boys are the military, but then you've got people talking about, you know, climate change and uh, terrorism and so on. So you can see how, uh, in a sense, the WHO has found a discourse that allows it to sit at the table with the big boys, rather than dealing with an issue which is about everyday realities and who gets sick and how they recover. And it, it sort of, I digress here a bit. It reminds me of a couple of experiences that I've had. Uh, one was when the Asian Development Bank adopted poverty as one of its overarching goals rather than build, building big dams. And we were sent along to try and train them to think about poverty. And we could see the discomfort in the room. You know, this is not about big dams. This is just about micro level stuff about livelihoods. You know, we don't do livelihoods. Well, if you want to do poverty, you have to do livelihoods. Once I went to evaluate the IUCN, which is the International Conservation Society, and you could see a different kind of discomfort there. You know, we save tigers. You know, we're natural scientists. Why are you coming along with the soft social sciences? You know, so there's a kind of a, a sense of how, who people are within these organizations. And when you come along with a different discourse, if it doesn't fit into that identity, the reaction is to distance yourself. And of course, we have Diane Elson trying to talk to macro economic policymakers, you know, let's look at international financial architecture from the kitchen table rather than from the commanding heights of the economy. So reading through Claire's stuff about this global health, you know, security agenda and its distance from what matters to people on the ground really made me think about what, what sort of identity is the WHO trying to assume in this process? Um, and of course, the problem with uh, the, this global health security is it's not just a posture. There is a reality. And it, it, the reality is about not recognizing everyday illnesses, everyday threats. Um, it doesn't recognize the informal work that has to be done by women. And what I found very interesting is the slogans that come with this new agenda and slogans like, you know, about the universality of this global threat. So slogans like the disease has no borders, right? And global health security is only as good as weakest link. And of course, vulnerability to the pathogen, as we've realized from COVID, is neither global nor universal. It is stratified. And one illuminating example, which I enjoyed from Claire's book, is about mosquitoes as carriers of the dengue fever, and the fact that it doesn't recognize borders, it doesn't recognize the U.S. and the Mexican border. However, 10 times as many people got sick on the Mexican side of the border as did on the U.S. side of the border. 
because people on the Mexican side of the border were less likely to have sanitation, they had crowded housing and so on. So, yes, it's global, but it's global in a very stratified way. So Claire's book is about all the different ways in which inequalities play out. She talks about the attention that was given, disproportionate attention given to Brazil as one of the BRICs and the you know, rising powers and the neglect of, of, of Zika in African countries and other places in the world. Uh, she talks about the fact that even within Brazil, it was very much concentrated in the northeast of Brazil. Infection rates were highest. That's not coincidence. Zika virus is carried by mosquitoes. Mosquitoes thrive where there are poor sanitation, bad waste disposal, standing water in roads because of poor drainage. You store water in your house because you don't have running water. Your health service is inaccessible. You can't afford long sleeves. You have to stay in a hot house, you know, not in an air-conditioned room. You can't afford to buy insect repellent and so on and so forth. So, of course, it was the black, rural and poor Brazil that got Zika not the white, affluent, and more urban Brazil. And then the gender inequalities, which Claire has spelt out in some detail. And of course, the most catastrophic or the long-term uh, results of Zika is likelihood of babies being born with uh, congenital Zika syndrome. And that was why mothers played such an important role. But um, women can get bitten by mosquitoes. Women can later get pregnant. Men too can pass on the Zika virus through sexual intercourse. But men were not asked to be careful about mosquitoes. The burden was put on women. And the warning, as Claire said, clean your house and don't get pregnant. Now, that's easier if you have all the sanitation, if you have all the running water and all the utilities. But as for not getting pregnant, you know, to me, there's some very obvious ways of not getting pregnant. One, you don't have sex. Two, you access family planning. If you have to have sex, access family planning. And three, if you get pregnant anyway, have an abortion. Well, men were not told about, you know, sexual transmission. Men were not told about using condoms. Men were not told about being careful when they had sex. And we know that there is unequal power about who has sex where on whose terms and who gets pregnant, who uses condoms and who does not. Uh, we also know that um, what Claire said is it was very difficult, particularly in the Northeast, for women to get access to contraception. And it was really, and we have unwanted pregnancies, and it was really, uh, I mean, the abortion-related abortion deaths in Brazil are concentrated amongst the black population, much higher amongst the black population. Um, 2.5 times higher amongst black women than the rest. And 83%, 83% of black women uh, were the ones who had children with, with, the, with, the, with the congenital Zika syndrome. So this, just the story was the state was asking women to do certain things, but not providing them with any of the means that they, that they needed. Um, so Claire's not asking the WHO to uh, abandon its global health security, but it is asking for some of the issues that we talked about and that Sophie has also picked up on. Uh, how do you inform your policies with the realities on the ground? And without that, who you ask, whatever you ask, it doesn't matter. You have to do it. You have to understand a bottom-up perspective on what health risks mean. But I want to end with one question, which I 
I've never managed to get around to getting an answer to. One of the things that Claire talks about is how Brazil used quite a lot of its military to accompany these vector control agents, you know, going from house to house to check if people were being, you know, hygienic and sanitary and not having stored water. And of course, they had to rely on the military because they were not investing enough in health services and asking health agents to do this work. But it was quite scary, I think, for very poor people to have the army turning up on your door and, you know, asking you questions about your behavior. But the question I want to ask is, you know, we all invest so much in the military and a lot of us invest very little in the army, uh, in, in health services. So the question is, what does the military do all of the time? And everyday basis, they're not fighting wars. You know, we're not fighting wars most of the time. We're not fighting wars half of the time or even a quarter of the time. What is it they do every day to earn this huge share of the budget that so many countries devote to them? So I'm not sure you're going to give me an answer, but I thought about it when I read that piece. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Nyla, for that, for those insights and, and interesting questions as well. Um, again, we'll go through uh, all three of our speakers on our panel before we turn it back uh, to questions. So uh, last up, we have Gustavo. Okay, thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you, Claire. Thank you so much to invite me to, to be here today and celebrate your book. So it's a very, very good discussion. I, I, I have heard the book uh, very rapidly, but uh, this is completely fantastic. I saw in the question and answers and key that uh, there are a Brazilian uh, researcher asking for to translate your book to into Portuguese and we can looking for it, right? So, um, well, uh, Naila put some questions that I <laughs> would like to put as well. So congratulations, Laila. So there are very, very important uh, questions to, to discuss. So um, the book puts a lot of um, uh, lights on our context and reality, not just about Zika. Zika is a kind of analyzer of multiple and complex relationships. So we could, um, as a constitutionist or um, people that believe that uh, the, the things and politics and also the biological reality is also built by social, political and uh, gendering entanglements. So uh, it's important to say that uh, the global health security is a kind of a process, right? A process that can include multiple actors, right? So the first thing that Anila already said, so uh, the global health security is very segmented and fragmented. Mm -hmm. I would like to say that global health is just focused to control low and middle-income countries and populations, right? to avoid threats against the political order and economical order. So I can see uh, global health policies in the UK, for instance, so, and also in the US and the, the global north. So that's why it's so important that you book bring us uh, the, the perspective of the global south, especially from the Brazil, right? I would like to 
to share just some pictures that can illustrate that uh, uh, fantastically um, uh, clear, express, and analyze in the current book, right? So the first thing is that um, Zika globally was focused in these two pictures, right? Uh, the microcephaly and the mosquitoes, the baby who had uh, small heads. And this is important to say that in Brazil, the perimeter of the head changed three times because we had a universal partner uh, based in the global north. So when we have to access assess the head perimeter in Brazil, we identify that the Brazilian partner is different from the rest of the world. So that's why it's so important to say how to, uh, we can uh, standardize the global health measures. The second is about mosquitoes, right? Uh, Lila and uh, Sophie already said about this. The war against mosquitoes. The war is not new in global health or international health, especially in the low American countries. So we use military force to control disease, especially to control environment, territories, and neglected people. So it is also would like to highlight. So the army is around everywhere where we don't have sanitation when we don't have clean water and we don't have social protections. Uh, in Brazil, especially, uh, the national health system is really strong. We have very, very good primary health care, but there's no intersectoral work. So uh, integrating health social, sanitation, and many other measures. But the one thing that I would like to, to discuss is that uh, clean your house and avoid be pregnant. This is the message. There's a beautiful actor in Brazil, Camila Pitanga. She is really great, but this time she uh, went too bad because this is the message. Women, take care of your house, clean your house and avoid pregnancy. So there's no discussion in Brazil about sexual transmission and about so gender relations and gender issues among um, uh, Zika uh, transmission. So, um, that's, well, uh, the question that uh, I would like to, to discuss as well is uh, the whole and the overwhelming of women as caregivers, the sexual and the reproductive rights. So, I think that it's important things to discuss, and this is very old, especially in Brazil, we have very, very good discussions about feminists and how to criticize the politics uh, focus on human health. 
what we have here and all over the world is a historical medicalization of human bodies, produced politics for pregnant uterus. So controlling reproduction is very, very important. So and control and take women as objects. Never women uh, was were uh, a subject or an actor in national uh, health or global health security. Even we have women in the board. So it's not enough uh, equity uh, distribution of leadership in global health. We have to change the technology. We have to change uh, the unequal forces and the invisibilities of uh, human health and human politics. So, and I would like to share very quickly um, a movie from our exhibition that we are telling um, the history of Zika outbreak. There are just uh, three minutes uh, with some uh, testimonies about uh, uh, Zika outbreak in Brazil, all of them uh, by women. One thing that I would like to, to highlight clear here, how to understand global health security as a process involving multiple actors, especially in Brazil, religion was too important as well as racism and class, social class issues. So all of the uh, mothers' associations are against abortion in Brazil related to Zika uh, epidemic. So this is another important issue to discuss in your uh, reflections. So uh, I would like to, to share very quick here. So can you see the screen, right? Yes, we can. Yes, so go ahead. With the end of public health emergencies, little by little, Zika was forgotten and silenced. Many lives were affected and every day new cases and serious diagnoses emerged. The new demands for rights, assurance and access to services are rising. Pela atenção básica de maneira mais é, efetiva. E a nossa reivindicação são pessoas qualificadas e que o, o, os, os poderes públicos nos abracem, trazendo para nós mais é, reabilitações, mais centros, mais abertos que nos acolhem. Um bebê que precisa realizar várias consultas, várias especialidades e que, portanto, tem uma agenda super pesada. Precisamos da mobilidade dessas crianças 
porque isso impacta, impacta na qualidade de vida. Faltadas para essas crianças que estão entrando na escola, que precisam ser incluídas na sociedade, as escolas não estão preparadas. Na rede pública existe uma grande defasagem de mediadores. Então, um mediador, às vezes, tem que ficar com duas, três crianças, cada um com uma síndrome diferente. The paths to ensure the rights of those affected go through the protection and care of the children and the woman. A maior parte das pesquisas estão terminando neste momento. É, a gente já sabe que elas têm um alto risco de, de ter atraso de desenvolvimento, mas elas precisam ser acompanhadas até a idade escolar, no mínimo. E principalmente na questão básica, orientar, é, é, ajudar, contribuir né, junto aos gestores estaduais e municipais na importância do uso da caderneta, da importância de fazer essa vigilância do acompanhamento, de identificar atrasos do desenvolvimento. Recomendarmos o exame de fundo de olho para crianças que foram expostas à zika durante a gestação confirmada, ou que a mãe teve sintoma, ou mesmo a criança que está no seu primeiro ano de vida e que está apresentando algum atraso, mesmo que não tenha tido história de zika durante a gestação, porque a gente sabe que a maioria das pessoas é assintomática. Muitas vezes o foco está na criança e é necessário, mas as mães que estão em sofrimento psíquico, emocional, elas não estão sendo levadas em conta. Escutar as pessoas que vivem essa realidade, porque somos nós, familiares, mães, que podemos apontar as falhas do sistema. Ela é um espelho dessa desigualdade, ela é um espelho de uma sociedade que optou pela iniquidade. Eu acho que a principal recomendação, o que a partir dela significa garantir a sustentabilidade do sistema único de saúde, seja reconhecida como cidadão e que, e que a gente dê as melhores condições para que ela tenha o melhor desenvolvimento. Life must go on, and so does the work of Brazilian science and of the unified health system with justice, well-being and equity. Okay, thank you very much. That's my time. <laughs> thank you, Gustavo. Thank you for sharing that with us. Okay, we've got about 30 minutes now uh, for questions. Um, a few have already come in, in the Q&A. Claire, I don't know if there's anything you want to respond to from the discussants for the first couple of minutes, and then I'll um, pitch a couple of the Q&A questions to you as well, or to the panel. Sure, thanks, Justin. And thanks, Sophie, Nilo, and Gustavo for your, your really thoughtful comments. I actually think that that last um, uh, that video clip that Gustavo just shared is the answer to this question that Sophie ended with, right, which was, What would happen if you actually asked the women affected what they wanted? And, you know, they just want their kids to be okay and they want to have, be able to access healthcare and to be able to their kids to go to school. And, you know, the same thing that probably most women around the world would want, right? But that doesn't seem to then mirror any of the policies that we've seen at all, right? And even thinking about COVID, you know, We haven't seen this come through into policy. We haven't seen this reality of like, you know, even here in the UK, like we'll just shut schools, right? And we won't think where this extra labor is going to fall. And even, you know, even if you can excuse the government, the UK government for not thinking about these things in the first lockdown, by the time we came around to the third lockdown in the UK in January, we'd done this twice before. And you can't say, oh, we didn't know when we were going to be burdened. What we see is a, a choice, right? A trade-off is being made and women are the ones who are being left out of that trade-off and not being given, you know, not being given prioritization, not being given the support they need, even if it's relatively <coughs> minimal, 
like for example you know the, the one in the uk that i keep coming back to is well why don't you make it a legal right for women to be allowed to get furlough on childcare grounds during school closures right it was left to the discretion of the employer and we know the statistics from the tuc show that the, the trade union congress show that seven out of ten women's employers said no right and so it's these small things that governments could be doing that they're not doing and i think this is on a much bigger macro scale right we see it again in brazil currently with the COVID outbreak again the 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 p1 variant that's that's coming out of brazil has been much we've seen a much higher association with um, maternal mortality for example in brazil in brazil where most of the maternal deaths are happening during covid so women dying of covid in pregnancy or postpartum is happening in brazil and the brazilian government again rather than tackling this and trying to say well let's make sure women have good care and good maternity services and these services aren't dis disrupted by the pandemic have said again just don't get pregnant right this is the solution if women don't get pregnant then they won't die of covid in pregnancy and so I think this just kind of, this kind of, the, the, the answer is always the same, right? It's just, why don't governments think about it, right? And I think that's the kind of key thing, which I still don't know why. And I still haven't got to the bottom of that. If, if the answers are relatively straightforward, and depending on how cynical I'm feeling, gives me a different answer as to why governments don't do that. But it just seems like you're ostracizing 50% of your electorate immediately. And I'm sure that's, you know, as everyone on this call knows, there's multiple other factors that are going into that. Uh, and I just think the other, the other one I'm going to respond to is Nina's comment at the end, which is why do we invest in the military and not investing in healthcare if effectively what the military doing is delivering healthcare? And obviously, this is a multifaceted concept and it goes back to the idea of state security and needing to protect yourself, you know, as a, as a government from, from attack and you, know, you need to be operational and ready. But I think it does ask a much bigger question. So one of the big things that came out of the Ebola outbreak and actually work that Sophie and I did at the time, looking at the role of the military during the, the epidemic was, you know, why did the UK government send in the UK military rather than sending in broader health services? And the kind of finding was that one, well, they, they could get the military to go, right? Like people weren't volunteering to go to expose themselves to Ebola. But if you're the military, you sort of have to go where you're told to go. And the second one was it was coming up to a major spending review of the military. And so if you're showing they're doing stuff, right, you can then maintain your budget. But I think a much better question needs to be asked of, and it's hard to get a control for this, had that money been spent on health systems, what would the trade-off have been, right? And actually, I mean, I would argue it's a much better spend to spend on health systems than the military, but I'm obviously not a strategist and I'm not thinking of the big picture. But I think that would be an amazing study to try and find out the answer to. Justin, could I just add something to Claire's comment? I also think they could send the military because the military not doing anything. Everybody else is busy. Absolutely. But then the, the, the risk is, and again, this is something that Sophie and I have talked about before, um, is you don't want to get in a situation where your actor of your last resort becomes your first resort. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying on a practical grounds, they're not doing anything. They're not doing anything. Exactly. They haven't been doing anything. But interestingly, we've seen them doing lots during COVID, right? All around the world, we've seen the military doing lots. And it hasn't just been around, um, you know, control of populations. It's been, they've been the ones providing care in lots of places. They've been in Canada, they were the ones working in care homes to try and stop the infection getting in. And so actually you see and in the UK, they're running the rollout of the vaccine program. 
And so you're actually seeing that they are pivotal, right? But to me, it, it kind of goes to what you were saying, which is they're not doing anything and they've got a great structure which can go tomorrow and no one fights it. Okay, thanks so much for responding to, to some of the comments already. Now I'm gonna read through some questions. We've already got several coming in. I'm gonna try and group one or two together when I can, just for the interest of time. So we've got a lot of questions that kind of relate to issues of advocacy, uh, policy change, both at national and global level. So I'll just start with a couple of them. Um, the first from Mariana Lima, who's a PhD candidate in, in Brazil, uh, says that Brazil has been a country with chronic maternal mortality exacerbated by the pandemic. On the other hand, um, health feminists encounter strong political and moral barriers to advancing day-to-day -day care and the adoption of national policies that guarantee women's autonomy. And so the question is, how do you think gender and racism issues in Latin America uh, act on the barriers of advancing uh, this sense in this sense? So I guess it's in relation to these barriers of taking it forward at political level, um, the strong political and moral barriers they face. Um, but, that, but also there's a question from Abhishek Bhatia, who's a doctor in India, uh, who's also studied at the LSE in the past, um, asking how does civil society in uh, Latin America advocate for gender reform in health and asks if WHO has played any role in that. So I'll link those two together, but then they've got some other questions that also relate in some ways. I'm not sure who would like to speak to those. I, I can jump in, but please, uh, I don't wanna just hold the, the microphone. Um, so I guess the question around the maternal mortality and, and the gender analysis in Brazil, I think that's the key question is, the, the, the role of politics in this. And that sounds like an obvious thing to say, but particularly at the moment with COVID and, and, and what's happened around gender rights in the last three years since Bolsonaro has been in power. And even before that, this kind of move towards the right wing and this very, very strong like anti-gender rhetoric that we see. And, you know, the, the minister for women in Brazil who's actively against, you know, women working right and she says she wants women to be in the homes and she says she wants traditional gender gender stereotype roles and and you know not allowing access to abortion and, and you, you see this really anti-gender politics happen i remember being with gustavo last was it, in 2019 in in and you're one of your colleagues telling me that now in the ministry of health they their mission at, or they've been told by the new administration <clears throat> that they weren't allowed to ratify anything at the who which had the word gender in it right the brazilian government was taking a very staunch anti-gender approach to it. And so it's obvious that this is then going to have an effect on national policies, right? Though this isn't going to be prioritized if they don't believe in it and they don't want it. And so then I think this links on to the next question, which is civil society. And we see in Brazil and across Latin America, this really strong feminist movement. And it's really powerful. And we're seeing it, you know, we saw it coming out very strong around um, the question of abortion and pushing the Supreme Court to hold a hearing around access to abortion as a consequence of Zika. And, you know, we see it again during COVID mobilizing, and maybe Gustavo can talk more about it, but really mobilizing against these policies which are penalizing women. And yes, it's, it's powerful, but I would argue we haven't necessarily seen change, right? Because the, uh, the, the, the executive, the judicial system are all staunchly conservative. And I think that's a, a meaningful problem. Where we have seen change in some of these places, like for example, in Colombia, in Argentina, where we've seen more liberal policies come into place, as a, you know, both as a consequence of, of political change and um, uh, 
civil society movements, right, we do see slightly better outcomes for women in the health sector. We saw better outcomes for Zika, for example. We saw fewer women infected. But there are still structural barriers, right? There's still questions around how far it, how far do you live from a health system and, you know, who's looking after your kids when you're going to get an appointment. So there are still structural barriers that remain, but you see the impact of kind of liberalisation of gender policy happening. May I jump in here? Justin? Yes, sir. please. Yes, very quickly. So I, I think that this, this point, Claire, uh, I think how to reimagine democracy, how to reimagine it, because uh, this kind of movement, they are very fragile when uh, the executive government uh, turns into the conservative agenda. So we are lasting our, our institutions. We are lasting our rights at the moment in Brazil. So and it's not just in Brazil. We can see it in Latin American countries as well. So uh, how the, the democracy and the process is so fragile in these kind of countries. So how to strengthen society, how to spread process of dialogue and uh, values uh, to, to defend human rights. It's not just about right and left, but how to improve this kind of uh, structure to defend life. What's happening in Brazil, it's a kind of a catastrophe right now. So, and uh, it's not just about gender agenda, but also indigenous agenda, about race, about social class, about poverty. So many, many social policies are being uh, destroying at the moment. So how to reinvent democracy, how to reinvent social, and a political process uh, uh, to get more strengthened in this kind of uh, uh, contests. Sophie, yeah, do you want to come in quickly, and then I'll go to the next. Yeah, just quickly. I mean, to add to that, I think it's you know, it's not that states don't know about the gendered impacts or the lives of women. They do know. They just don't care or they will feign strategic ignorance to use Lindsay McGoey's work. And I think that's also at the WHO level and in the institutional level as well. They know, they just don't want to do anything about it because it costs money and it's a bit complicated. That's why you see the only aspect that's commonly responded to is gender-based violence, because they say, okay, well, we've got frameworks that we can do something about that and we can present ourselves as being active on that and then ignore everything else that's going on. So they do know, and I think, there's also a wider concern that connects with Gustavo's comment around it's a kind of fight for democracy and rights. And I think that the feminist approach to pandemics and global health security is actually bigger than just the gendered impacts we see. It's also around these questions of borders and what happens as a consequence of the pandemic and how politicians are harnessing that. It always makes me very nervous when I see sort of feminists really going for the border issue when it comes to pandemic response and not thinking through the consequences. You see much more vocal concerns around migration scholars than you do in global health scholars, which is something we can reflect on. And I think that just brings us to one of the questions in the Q&A around the WHO and the shift to global health security. I don't actually think it's just global health security to blame for this. Health is all about the universal. There's no kind of focus on the difference. And again, I think 
you know, I should be on commission from LSE here. You know, this is what Anne Phillips' basic work from the 1990s about universal indifference in feminism. If you bring up these issues of gender, you were always told about, well, healthcare is universal. And we have to move beyond that. And we have to get global health people, public health people actually reading some very basic feminism to understand how these issues are all very interconnected. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, so the, a couple more questions, and you've just touched on one of them. I was going to link them together, so I'll just read out some of them. Uh, so two more, which, again, it's just getting at what you've already been discussing, really, in relation to international organizations like WHO and their role. Uh, so one uh, comes from, if I can scroll up to it, uh, Katri Bertram, who's an LSE alumnus, uh, who did an embassy in international relations. Um, question directed to Claire, but others might have views on this. Basically, how... To we, do we translate the rhetoric, the advocacy, the accountability movements such as Global Health 5050 and Women in Global Health, how does that get translated to local levels? So you mentioned that it's at, at kind of global levels but not being seen. So we've already had some thoughts, discussion, challenges. Um, and then I think the question Sophie might have been talking to from Rachel Hammond said, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, um, basically asking, you know, recognizing that WHO is the global health body empowered to advance the right to health, um, but as your research, uh, Claire, is showing, it, it's moved further from this role by embracing health security, and COVID appears to have been amplifying this. So if a rights-based approach to Zika would focus on how women are aff and affected communities can be supported rather than states, um, but if WHO is continuing to embrace global health security, the, the challenge is, you know, will that just continue? Um, so Rachel says, uh, I see no appetite from WHO or member states to refocus on rights, but do you have any examples um, that might give hope to that? So, you know, do people know of cases where countries have, or, you know, um, if the WHO has shifted to security, uh, any, any ways to overcome that? So Sophie's talked a little bit, um, but wondering if Claire or anyone else wants to talk to either of those. I can talk a bit to the second one, either of them. I guess the first one, the, the, the point about the kind of tension between WHO being a rights-based organisation and being an organisation which is about health for all and a very all-encompassing mandate, and this tension with actually what it does in its day-to-day -day job, which may not, especially at the moment, is very focused on health security, is a really important one. And actually, I think it, 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 when you then lay a gender on top of that, you see a very complex relationship, which is... You know, there is a gender strategy at WHO, right? There is a strategy for trying to gender mainstream across all areas of work. But because of the way that, that WHO is funded and these activities are funded, it doesn't get implemented because what gets funded is these, uh, you know, programmatic activities. So the US government comes in and says, I want to fund vector control or I want to fund HIV control. And you might then see a gender policy in that area, but it then doesn't get mainstreamed across all other areas of health. So we have seen activity with WHO trying to bring gender more in, in areas where they've had funding for that. So around universal health coverage, around work, the healthcare workforce, which is heavily gendered. But until COVID, we hadn't seen anything happening around health emergencies. Health emergencies weren't deemed to be a gendered issue because, you know, anyone can get infected and in the kind of language that you hear. And we are seeing some change. So, you know, one step of hope is that WHO has committed and it has now set up a, um, a, a gender working group in the health emergencies program to try and bring some of these issues in but that is is also not systematic and and you know organizational wide and it's not necessarily recognizing the breadth of the issues 
And there's a paper that uh, I published recently with Sarah Davis argues, you know, there's a tension then between the kind of formal structures which are put in place and the way that WHO might say, well, we've got a new policy and actually the reality of how the organization works and how staff working for that organization works and whether gender mainstreaming comes out across in every policy. And I think you only have to look at, at, at what's happened and the kind of uh, horrific sex abuse that's been happening in Ebola in the Ebola outbreak in DRC to show how this gender issue isn't across all areas of, of issues right now. And so I think there's, there's glimmers of hope, but it needs to be a lot more holistic at WHO level. And in response to the question around, you know, what can you do to uh, translate the reticacy advocacy of, of women in global health and global health 50-50 to the local level, I think it's happening, right? Like local level, there's so much grassroots feminist activism. There's so much like, you know, local level activity going around to support women and women's movements and women's groups, women's organizations, call them what you want. The problem is that that, those, that grassroots level activity isn't linking up with what advocacy groups at the global level are saying. And, you know, I, I, I know not everyone agrees with my analysis of this, but, you know, I see a... The difference between what the activists on the ground are saying, which is how do we get policies to actually affect change for us, and a kind of add women and stir agenda happening at the global level, which is if we get more women in the WHO, if we get more women leading the response, if we get more women making decisions, it's going to have a, a, an impact. And I actually don't necessarily think that's true. We should have more women for representation's sake and for gender parity's sake, but I don't necessarily know if those things are going to link together. And I think we need to have a better dialogue between those two groups to figure out actually how do we make it all work for all women. Sophie, you want to come in on that? Very, very briefly, if you don't mind, because there's one or two more questions I'd like to get to, but if you want to have a quick response. Super quick. Uh, so global health is about 15 years behind international development. So we could just leapfrog all this representation and just get there quicker. Um, and also most activists working on the ground have been working for decades, but they don't see themselves as working in global health. So you can see that split, particularly in sexual and reproductive health rights. And really, what does global health actually have to offer them? So I think they're just different entities. Global Health 5050 does excellent work. But it's not actually necessarily about that connection. It's about something else. It's about representation and leadership. Thanks. Now I saw you smile when Sophie said that about uh, international development. I don't know if you completely agree, but um, there certainly are cross-disciplinary, cross-field areas uh, of learning for sure. There was there was a question from uh, Martha Flynn, who's a student at Birkbeck University, which I think we're, we've already kind of covered most of, um, but kind of just turns this discussion to COVID in a sense, saying, you know, you, you've, you've spoken about how different health crises, public health crises have disrupted discourse around sexual and reproductive rights. So Zika, rubella was mentioned. Um, but it doesn't always translate into long-term policy and legislation. We've talked a bit about that, um, like liberalization of access to abortion, for example. Uh, and so Martha asks, you know, how do you think the COVID pandemics, uh, specifically the impact on women's access to sexual and reproductive health services, how can that be situated in this longer-term context of public health emergencies and sexual and reproductive health? Um, any thoughts on, on that linking kind of what's happening in COVID to these ongoing efforts? Claire, do you want to come in? Sure. I mean, I, I would actually say that this might be this, the, the kind of glimmer of hope that I see in COVID. I actually think that whilst not universal, some of the progress that's happened around access to sexual reproductive health and maintenance of maternity health, maternal health services, for example, during COVID 
is something we haven't seen before in previous health emergencies. Now, again, there's been complete variety of this. You know, we saw some parts of the world say, when we've got to, you know, when we've got crisis moments of COVID and we're only offering essential health care, access to SRH is not essential. We saw the other thing happen in places like the UK and France, which is we're going to make sure more than ever that women are able to access these services and take them out of the clinical setting to try and reduce transmission and move them into pharmacies and supermarkets and, and home use of abortion medication, for example. And, you know, now in the UK, there's a debate going on about should we continue this, right? And, you know, actually ensuring better access to services for women. I think we're seeing a shift in how some parts of the world are protecting maternity care. And we're seeing, for example, um, much more advocacy, and I would argue, indeed, implementation in some countries around how, um, you know, minimum service provision is being insured for women within pandemic preparedness plans to ensure that next time an epidemic happens, that that part of health is not, you know, deemed unessential. And so I do think whilst it's not universal, this might be one area of some form of progress. But I think you could also say, and kind of goes back to Sophie's point is, you know, why, why do people focus on gender, gender-based violence in, in crises? It might be a kind of relatively easy win, right? It's, it's not adding much more money. It's offering services. It's, you know, the places that are doing it already are just protecting it. Uh, the countries that aren't doing it still aren't going to do it. But it shows that there is some activity going on. And so if anyone says, what are you doing about women? Governments can say they're doing something. However, it also reproduces kind of assumptions around women based only on their reproductive function. Right. And like, who cares if women are losing their jobs? They've got access to condoms. And like that, that, that's what's important. That's what women should be doing. And so I think that does, you know, raise a bigger question. But I do see it as a potential uh, benefit of COVID if there is one has been the recognition of this in some areas. Great. Thanks, Claire. Um, the last question. Uh, oh, Gustavo, do you want to quickly come in and then I'll ask the last one. I want to leave a minute for everyone to have a, some final comments as well. But yes, yes. No, just, a, just a quick question, because this question uh, can uh, produce another question. How uh, we can imagine uh, global health security and gender agenda in a post-COVID world? So, uh, after we get the vaccine, many, many uh, questions could be invisible again. So the biomedical technological industry, it's very strong at the moment, and also epidemiological surveillance. So how to compete and how to get visible, important, invisible issues uh, in the global health agenda at the moment especially in the post-COVID world. Post-COVID for you, because here in Latin America, we are in a very severe uh, COVID crisis here. So it's a timely question. So just it, Justin. Okay, thanks. I mean, the last question is actually two parts. So I don't know if we have time for both, but it's from uh, one of our uh, MSC Global Health Policy students here at the LSE from Sonali Silva, um, who I guess, the, the second part of the question was really kind of just addressed. It asked, you know, Claire, you mentioned that uh, gender is only mentioned twice in the international health uh, uh, regulations and not effectively. Is that where the work needs to begin? Um, 
more inclusion, more recognition of lived realities uh, during emergencies. I think your book speaks to that a bit um, and calls for that. But if you want to have a very quick word on that. And Sonali's other point of the question is just, um, do you have any examples where a security lens or securitization maybe has ever been advent advantageous for gender issues? Um, or has it always been negative? So uh, maybe quick answers on that, and then we'll have um, a minute each to wrap up. I don't know if you have a quick answer for that. Um, I'll tackle the first one and I'll leave the other one to uh, the rest of the panel because uh, I don't know the answer to it. But um, yes, absolutely, the IHR needs to recognize gender in a more comprehensive way than it does currently, which is just about representation. But that's only the start of it. I think that's a good activity that WHO could be doing as the lead actor in global health to demonstrate commitment to this. But then obviously it needs to be mirrored through to make sure that national governments are also doing that in their pandemic response planning and pandemic response policies to make sure that it actually happens. And for example, it could be a way that the WHO tries to hold governments to account on reporting on that, for example. Uh, so yes, but it's just a starting point. And I'll leave the other question to others on this panel. Yeah, okay. So if anyone has any thoughts about um, whether securitization or security lens has ever been advantageous to gender issues, I think if you have a thought on that, let's let's do it. We've only got five minutes left. So I'd like to give you each one minute um, for any final reflections and thoughts. Uh, I think we'll go in reverse order from uh, the speakers, if that's okay. So we'll start with Gustavo, then we'll go to Nyla, Sophie, and leave the last minute to Claire, if that's all right. So Gustavo, any final thoughts in the last minute? Well, first I would like to thank, uh, I think that we can have another opportunity to continue the discussion. So um, the gender issues and uh, the gendering agenda, I think that uh, it, it could uh, changing uh, the global health uh, agenda as well. So, and um, uh, at the moment, I, I would like to invite Claire to launch the book in in a in a meeting at Few Cruise, uh, probably in August. So I would like to to invite you and other colleagues here to <laughs> to get on board. So and thank you very much for invitation. So I really would like to continue the discussion. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Nyla, any final thoughts? Well, I'm going to accept that invitation if I can come to Brazil, but not on Zoom. <laughs> My thoughts, I have a couple of thoughts, and they, they're slightly disconnected. One is in Claire's book. She talks about the countries that were considered to be COVID uh, pandemic ready, you know, and actually they didn't do very well, you know, the US and so on. So that's one thing about, you know, what was it? But the other part of it, which links to it, is how much of all this relies on political leadership? And to what extent did the people who have done some of the good things that Claire's been talking about, you know, to what extent does it reflect not how pandemic ready you were, but the kind of political leadership that you were prepared to give? Um, and so I think, you know, um, things get confounded by politics. Okay, thank you. Sophie? So I'm going to answer the question and segue into my final thought. So you could argue that this whole security frame did benefit women to an extent in the AIDS response for the amount of money that went towards HIV and AIDS at the cusp of the turn of 2000. But it was more actually linked to activism and civil society than security. It's just framed nicely, with the exception of George Bush's PEPFAR project, which gave lots of money for prevention of mother-to-child transmission. However, and this is the consequence, that had massive impacts on sexual and reproductive health rights under the global gag rule as well. 
And the reason why I make this point is that we have to be very attentive to when issues are meant to prioritise women or gender equality can have can reproduce other wider inequalities in global health, particularly for women. And my closing point, I promise, is I think we can learn a lot from women, peace and security here in that actually we're at a really worrying time where this debate over gender and global health becomes about protecting women in this anti-gender, anti-feminist discourse and interventions actually then reproduce gender inequalities around this. And we have to be attentive to this because we saw it happen in women, peace and security, you know, protect Afghan women whilst reproducing other gender inequalities. And that could happen here as well. Thanks, Sophie. Claire, any final thoughts? No, I think uh, this has been such an interesting um, panel. And just again, just to thank Sophie and Nyla and Gustavo and, and you, Justin, for your time this afternoon, for reading the book, for giving such thoughtful comments and to everyone participating and um, I look forward to continuing the conversation wherever and whenever that might be. Thanks Claire and 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 as chair it's, it's, it falls to me to thank everybody who's also helped make this happen so all the uh, the other names you see on the screen without their videos on um, the Global Health Initiative, Department of Health Policy, the Latin American Caribbean Center and LSE events team have all been fantastic to facilitate this and then finally thank you all for coming and attending um, and we hope to see you soon at other LSE events. So goodbye from me uh, and have a nice day.